IMS almost 30 years ago, almost 25 years ago, um, the Buddha said, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. It was always in my mind quite a wonderful little saying, particularly those last two lines, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The Buddha isn't saying force it or make it or manufacture it or beat it down until it springs from love, born out of concern for all beings. He's saying let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. And so we look at the nature of our thoughts, not so much the passing thoughts, the discursive thoughts that move through our mind, but what is it that we really cherish, that we put our life's energy into? What is it that we hold in our heart in the realm of thought? It points to a very powerful and significant teaching of the Buddhas, which has to do with intention. From the Buddhist point of view, you might say that we can divide an action, some action that we do, into three parts. The first is the intention or the motivation or the heart space, the energy that is giving rise to that action. And this is considered extremely powerful and an important thing for us to understand, to be connected to, to recognize our own intention in doing an action. It's said that the, the energetic potential or the karmic seed is held in the intention. Because after all, the very same action might be really very different energetically depending on where it's coming from, what the motivation is that's giving rise to it. And I might reach down and offer one of you this book, and I might be doing it because I really like you and I want you to have the book, or I might be doing it because I started thinking, well, you know, I'm sitting in front of a room full of people. Wouldn't it be great if everybody thought I was a really generous person? And so I, in a great public flourish, give this book. Or perhaps I'm giving you the book because you have a book I want. And I think, well, gee, you know, if I give you this book, maybe you'll give me that book. And there's so many different places within me, so many different energies that can be giving rise to that very same action. And all anybody sees is my hand moving down, probably the same smile on my face, <laughs> my hand moving forward and giving the book. It's a very different action depending on where it's coming from. That's why the motivation is considered to be the, the key point of karma, of, of cause and effect, or of conditionality. It's also taught that in the Buddhist tradition, that only we can actually know our own intentions. And this is something that calls for a tremendous amount of sensitivity and awareness on our parts, mindfulness on our parts, and also, of course, honesty on our parts. We might look at somebody else and guess at their intention. They might look at us and guess at ours. 
it might be extremely perceptive and it might be a really good guess. But nonetheless, only we can really know for ourselves. It's also said that it is the realm of intention, it's the field of intention that these particular practices, especially the first three of metta, compassion, and sympathetic joy, this is where they work. This is the arena, the pasture, in which they perform the transformation in our being. As perhaps has been mentioned, I think it was mentioned earlier, these four practices taken together of metta, compassion, sympathetic, joy, and equanimity are known as the Brahma Viharas. Brahma meaning sublime or celestial, or one translation I heard of that word I really liked a lot was best. Vihara meaning dwelling or abiding or home. So taken together, these four states of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity form our best home. Like any home, we might leave it, but we kind of know where we belong. We know where we can feel most at ease. We can return there, almost magnetized to come back there because that is where we belong, where we'll be comfortable. We can really be ourselves. And so over time, the, the cultivation of these states through this practice transforms where we feel at home, that base of motivation from which we move throughout the world that gives rise to how we speak, how we relate, how we act every day in every situation. So this is really the, the link in our lives that gets transformed through the practice of the Brahma-viharas, is intention, and it's hugely important. The second aspect of action really refers to what might be called the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of how we do something or say something. So this means really, again, being mindful, being as aware as we can be, being connected in a broader sense, a much more global sense, trying to look at the context in which we're acting, trying to understand the conditions that are present being as in touch as we can be with what might be most skillful. So, for example, if I'm out of this beautiful motivation that I checked, want to give somebody a book, it would also be a good idea to try to be quite mindful of the context. I might think, well, you know, I have one book. There are all these people sitting in the room. Maybe this is the kind of action that would best be done privately. You know, maybe I shouldn't do it publicly. Maybe I should do it in another way. And it's the same with speech. You may be out of a, a really well-investigated and very good motivation. We want to say something to somebody. We really stop and try to be as skillful as we can. Is this the kind of thing best blurted out in front of everybody? Maybe it should be done more quietly. Is there a way I can say it that seems to be most honest, most useful? Whatever it might be, it takes quite a bit of awareness. 
And here we also learn all the time. We learn through trial and error. We learn through making mistakes. We learn through having feedback. We learn through being open to learning. To really develop as great a skill as we can as we live our lives. And then the third level is a a very interesting part of action, a very interesting aspect, which is really, you might say it's the result as much as we can see it in the moment of the action. And particularly, it's the result in terms of the response. And here, the Buddha talked about it in terms of praise and blame. Sometimes we do something and we receive a lot of praise for it. Sometimes we do something and we receive a lot of blame for it. Sometimes we do something and we receive a lot of praise and blame for it. The Buddha was talking about just the nature of life, the nature of existence. He talked about it in terms of what he called the eight vicissitudes, saying this is like the fabric of life. This is really how things are. It's pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. That's it. Woven in and out, changing all of the time, outside of our control, outside of our personal dominion. This is the nature of life. It's pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute for everybody. Once I was um, hiking with some friends, we were in Northern California in this state park, and we decided we were going to hike for three days along this certain path. And then on the fourth day, we were going to turn around and follow that very same path out, so retrace our steps. And this was still the third day when we were just on our way in, and I was walking with a friend, one of my friends, and turned out to be a day of very steady, constant, unremitting downhill walking. We are just walking, walking, and finally it was like we were struck by the simultaneous realization, and we both just stopped and looked at each other. And he said to me, in a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. <laughs> you know? And he was right. Sure enough, the next day when we came out along that same path, it was many, many hours of constant uphill walking. On one level, one might say it's a dualistic universe. On this level, pleasure and pain and so on. It's just how it is for everybody. It's not unnatural. It's not aberrant. Now, we live in this society which is so strange, where suffering is so disallowed that the message pretty constantly is, if you're suffering, it's your fault. If you're feeling pain, it's your fault. It shouldn't be. You should be able to be young forever. You should be able to never get sick. You should certainly not have to die. And so all around us, you know, we do see people getting sick and getting old and dying. And yet so often, too often, there's almost this element like it's a personal humiliation you know, that we blew it somehow. We should have been able to do better, keep things under wraps. We see people who are frightened. We see people who are upset. It's not allowed somehow. 
And yet, if this is the nature of existence, how can we possibly be at peace or in harmony until we allow the whole picture to be so? So here we are in the realm of action, where there is praise and there is blame. Now that first level of action, intention, we can both be more and more aware of through the cultivation of mindfulness, and we can transform. It can actually transfigure through the power of loving-kindness. Then in the second aspect, the skillfulness or lack of skillfulness with which we act, we can again become more and more mindful in a bigger sense of really learning, paying attention, seeing the effect of our of our speech, of our action, and learning. Effect not in the sense of praise and blame, but in terms of how we have been sensitive or insensitive to what was going on. So we can learn all of the time to be more aware. But that third level of praise and blame is actually the realm that is not within our power to control. And yet here, of course, is where we place our hearts. Here's here's the place that determines how we decide how well we've done and who we are and if we deserve to be happy and whether we have any integrity or not. And it's hopeless. (laughs) Because here's the realm that we cannot control. You know, what if I, out of this beautiful motivation, genuinely beautiful motivation, decided, you know, I'm going to give you a book, and I'm going to really think through to the best of my ability what's the appropriate book. I'm going to go buy it. I'm going to wrap it. I'm going to write a beautiful card, sincerely from my heart. I'm going to take the beautifully wrapped gift and the lovely card and I'm going to think what's the best way to give it to you, what's the best place to give it to you, what's the best time to give it to you and paying full attention to all of those factors, I happily hand you the book. But maybe on your way into the room, you know, you picked up a call and you just found out you won $10 million in the lottery, and you could not care less about this book. I mean, you are so disdainful of this book. It's just like, it doesn't even penetrate your consciousness. Or maybe you got a very distressing phone call on your way into the room, and you're, you're upset. Your energy is really caught up in, in some significant problem that you have to deal with. And here I am happily, my beautifully wrapped gift, you know, turning it over to you, and you don't thank me, you don't care, you're too upset, what does that have to do with me and the quality of my heart and the quality of my loving kindness and the quality of my generosity? Nothing. But here is the place where we always need to know if we did okay. So here is the the bitter irony that we settle upon the very place we cannot control to decide our sense of integrity rather than paying attention to those realms that we can continually 
be learning about and developing and transforming. There will always be praise and blame in this world. That doesn't mean that we don't give and we don't move forward and we don't act. It means that with wisdom, with understanding, our generosity actually can be generosity rather than expectation. It doesn't mean that we don't care. I mean, obviously, as human beings, we would like to be thanked, you know, at least for somebody to open it up, you know, <laughs> and, and thank us nicely while, you know, they're in view, <laughs> what they do later. It doesn't matter as much, but... But it's really, it's a very important teaching because metta practice actually is a practice of generosity. And so learning how to give is at its root. And what does it mean? Where is the, the true wholeness in the act of giving? There'll always be praise and blame in this world. And somebody tonight asked me about bowing, which some of us do when we come into the room. And I said, in response, you know, it is an Asian custom where so many of us practiced and learned meditation. Many of us uh, first learned meditation in, in India or Thailand or Burma. And there, a uh, Buddha image is very much not considered to be like a work of art or a piece of art. It's, it's considered to be a sacred object that is a very deep and direct reminder of the best within us and the tremendous potential we all have to be awakened, to be free beings. And so it is the Asian custom to acknowledge that. You know, when you bow to the Buddha, it's almost like it's a transparency where um, we look at the Buddha because it's a way of looking at ourselves and a capacity that exists within ourselves. And we look at ourselves in that light not because we own that capacity in a special, precious, singular way, but because that capacity exists in all beings. And so we look at the Buddha as a way of looking at ourselves, and we look at ourselves as a way of looking at all of life. So it's, it's quite um, a unity in that sense. And that is, the, that is often expressed in that culture through bowing. Now, the first time... As I said, I think I, I said when we talked about metta being up above the doorway here, we've always had those kinds of discussions here now for uh, just about 25 years. You know, what does it mean to have a tradition that was born and brought up in Asia and to be expressing it here in this culture? You know, should we have a, a word from Pali up above the doorway? Should it be English? Um, you know, what about Buddha statues? Should we have Buddha statues around? Should we not? And on, it's gone for 30 years and probably 25 years and probably, tw I say 30 because I've been practicing for 30 years, so that's the other number in my mind. Um, we've done that for 25 years, and so we'll probably do it for 25 more at least. Um, but what we settled upon was to have the Buddha statues around and yet not to bow because that also seems very strange sometimes in this culture. But the day one person, the very first time, a Western teacher who had just come back from Thailand decided that for him personally he would like to bow 
to the Buddha statue, which of course is not obligatory, he came into this room, he bowed to the statue, he sat down, he rang the bell at the end of the sitting an hour later, and by the time he got to the bulletin board, there were notes waiting for him. (laughs) And the first note that he picked off the board said, I was so delighted to see you bow to the Buddha statue because I myself have a very strong devotional side and it was a way of that part of me getting permission to be here as well. And then the second note he pulled off the bulletin board said, this is literally true, I was absolutely appalled to see you bow to the Buddha statue. (laughs) I thought it was really a horrible thing to do, you know, because after all, this is the West, it's not Asia, and, you know, and it's, it's a very strange thing for you to have brought, you know, and on and on it went. How long do you think it takes to get from here to the bulletin board? (laughs) Not long. It doesn't take that long. And already, they beat him to it, you know, for one thing. You know, everybody got out there first so they could write their notes. Within minutes, maybe seconds, there was praise and blame. It's just like that in life. But it's not that we don't care. But how much do we care? How deep does it cut? And I once had this experience after my uh, first book, Loving Kindness, came out, where um, I was in California, and I had lunch with somebody who said to me, you know, Sharon, you wrote that book in such a way, it's really like being with you. It's just like being with you and having a conversation with you. And I was just thrilled. I was so excited when they said that. First of all, I was also laughing when I I sat down here to begin the talk. This took me a very long time to write this book. And if you look at the blurbs on the back, Jack Kornfield says, Sharon Salzberg's long-awaited first book. (laughs) And then Stephen Levine says, we have been waiting for Sharon Salzberg's book for a long time, you know. And somebody else actually had the word finally in their blurb, but I made them take that out, you know, so. You know, so it took me a long time to write this book. (laughs) And I was so moved when this person said this to me at lunch that day. I thought, what an incredible thing, you know, to hear as a a baby writer. And um, I was so moved by the statement that That evening, I was having dinner with a whole other group of people, and I brought that comment up. I said, oh, you know what somebody said to me at lunch today? And and this person, this whole other group of people were at dinner, and this person at uh, the dinner table looked at me and said, that's not true. (laughs) She said, I'm reading your book. It's nothing like you. It's nothing like being with you. And I thought, okay, (laughs) you can be ecstatic at lunch and depressed at dinner, (laughs) or you can take a moment and think, it's the same book. It's one book written out of whatever motivation was giving rise to it at that time, with whatever level of skill I could bring to it at that time. It's the same book. Somebody reacted to it one way, someone else reacted to it another way. And it's not that I didn't notice, and it's not that I didn't care. I was definitely happier at lunch than I was at dinner. (laughs) But how much do we care, really? How bereft do we get? How much do we take it to heart? How much do we decide whether our book is worthless or not? 
Because if we really care that much, we go up and we go down and we go up and we go down. Sometimes we go up and down in the same conversation. And then again, life is just like that. So can we, in a sense, it's almost like take back our sense of integrity, of the wholeness of our being, the wholesomeness of our actions, to the realms that we actually can affect, the quality of our intention, our energy, the heart space that is giving rise to the action, and to the skillfulness, the relative skillfulness, with which we do whatever we do. It's really that place that is the is the point of metta. It's the ground of metta. And here also comes the, it's like the spaciousness of metta. Because we do what we do to the best of our ability, and then really we need to let go. Because how things will change for somebody, if things will change for somebody, when things will change for somebody, is really not within our realm of control. That understanding doesn't need to diminish our metta, it actually sustains our metta. Because it's said that that kind of understanding, which is like equanimity or peace, endows metta with patience. So that we don't feel that kind of driving demand get better already. And it's said that if we have that kind of understanding, it endows compassion with courage, because it's not easy to actually open to to suffering with, with compassion, rather than being quite broken by that, that view or that vision, and therefore wanting just to turn the other way. I had a really um, interesting experience now a year and a half ago when His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to New York City. Um, perhaps some of you were there, actually, where he gave three days of teaching in a theater that was rented. And then he was going to give a public talk in Central Park. And a a very good friend of mine was organizing the whole visit, and a lot of her energy was going into the event in Central Park. And it was was amazing just to witness the the preparations day after day as this was going on. And because it was a public event and there were no ticket sales or anything like that, there was no knowing how many people would come. And the day before the event, it actually it poured rain. It just rained and rained and rained. So we all thought, oh, well, you know, a lot of people won't come because it'll probably be pouring tomorrow too. But we woke up the next morning and the weather was really clear. And we went toward the park. And as we were just entering Central Park, we could hear the sound of Tibetan chanting in the distance but couldn't see anything. So we just followed the sound of the Tibetan chanting until we turned a corner, and there was an ocean of people. There were so many people. The official park estimates of the day were about 50,000 people. And more recently, the State Department, which provided the security for the Dalai Lama, told my friend that they were estimating something like 250,000 people were there to hear him give a talk. And that's what it looked like. It just was like 
everywhere. There were people, and all kinds of people. It was really an extraordinary day. And I hadn't really thought, like, how did that many people get to one place? You know, but I heard that every subway car was full of people going to Central Park to hear the Dalai Lama. So it was this extraordinary gathering of energy. We sat and waited, and there was a very unusual quality, I think, of stillness, given how many people there were, just waiting for him to come and speak. And then he arrived, and when he himself began to speak, he began with a statement that was pretty surprising and kind of startling, actually. He said, you know, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. And that was kind of an amazing thing to hear. And he said, he went on, he said, you know, I had to assume power when I was just 16 and had to flee the country in my early 20s, have lived in exile ever since, have had to try to keep intact uh, the culture of a community in exile, have had to daily hear the reports of the the pain and the suffering and, and everything that is happening within Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he went on to say, but I'm pretty happy. <laughs> and of course, that's what one sees, you know, when you see him, he's pretty happy. And then he went on to say, the reason that he was pretty happy, even in the midst of a certain amount of, of real difficulty, was because of the force of compassion. There's something about compassion in, seen in that light that is such a unifying element so that we're not seeing people in terms of categories and divisions and us and them and separation, but all of those barriers begin to melt. And so there is very much more of a sense of all being in this together somehow and that feeling, that understanding of, of that kind of oneness is what gives compassion a certain buoyancy, even though what it's looking at is pain. There's so much of a feeling of being part of a whole rather than separate that that in itself is its own special kind of happiness. It's not a giddy happiness, but Nonetheless, it's, it's a very powerful kind of happiness. And it was really an amazing experience listening to him because I bet out of those, say, 250,000 people sitting there in Central Park that day, there were quite a number of people who might have been able to say, you know, it hasn't been such an easy life. But how many actually could say, but I'm pretty happy. Now, happiness, again, it's not, it's not giddiness. It's more about spaciousness and connection of mind. And this is important because if we are depleted, there's really not all that much to give. Any practice of generosity is based on a sense of inner abundance, to be able to offer our loving kindness, offer our compassion, offer our energy, is based on some inner sense that we have something worth giving. And so we can't be depleted. We can't be burnt out and still be able to give. 
that's why we talk about the mix of some force like metta or compassion or sympathetic joy and equanimity to have that kind of balance that brings us in touch with the inner truth of what we have to give without being confused with the idea that the outer result will necessarily match the picture we would like to see evolve. It's all about how we view things. If we align our energy to be present with ourselves, with somebody else, then that is the gift of metta. It's the gift of compassion, and it actually is the gift of sympathetic joy as well. To be able to recognize that each of us, we do have something to give. Just necessarily we do. It's a capacity within us that is part of being alive. It's also interesting to go practice in Asian countries and to learn something about generosity in that light. This is, in a sense, it's um, material generosity. Because we would go, say, practice in a country like Burma, where we were never charged for room and board, and certainly not charged for the, the teaching. We weren't charged for room and board because the culture is such that the act of meditation is very highly esteemed. It's tremendously respected. And so the fact that you have come there to practice meditation inspires the people of the country to take care of you, to take care of your needs, so that every single bite of food you take in a Burmese monastery has been given to you by the people. And it's such a, an honor that people in some places have to sign up a year ahead of time to be able to go feed the meditators. And it's also the custom on, say, your birthday, not to receive gifts, but to give gifts. And so you would hustle to the monastery to be able to feed everybody um, to mark that occasion. And there we would be in Burma, which is an extremely poor country. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. And every bite of food we got was an offering from the people. Sometimes it was a person, sometimes it was a family, sometimes it would be a whole village that came together to make the offering. And always they would offer just the best of what they could, really the, the best of what they could afford. And sometimes that was not very much because it's such a poor country. It would be quite an amazing experience because whenever they could, the people would come to watch you eat the food of their offering. And sometimes you would look at it and think, oh my God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is horrible. And then you would look at them, and they would be so happy that they had the opportunity to feed you that there would be such an enormous wave of happiness and joy at being able to receive their offering. It was quite amazing to go through that twice a day, every day, you know, for months on end, and then to come back here and to see the difference 
to see how there could be, in some cases, so much material wealth and so little feeling within that allowed people to feel they could share it or give it or be generous, how somehow that inner space of feeling the abundance that allows one to give wasn't there. It'd be so shocking. And it became quite clear that external circumstance was not the guide to that inner space. That inner space was something else. And it's really the same thing when it's not material giving, when it's the force of our energy, of our presence, of our love, of our compassion. It needs to come from that recognition that we have something to give. Because we all have something to give. It's like that transparency of looking at the Buddha to see ourselves. It's not just ourselves. It's really within the the nature of being alive that there is this capacity. And that is the basis of doing the practice. That's why it's a gentle practice. Because we we are bringing to life something that is there. And we're nurturing it, and we're opening it, and we're moving it along. We're not trying to create something that isn't there. The nurturing, the opening, has to do with, as my friends swear they're going to put on my tombstone, has to do with not trying to create a feeling or an emotion. But it comes from how we view things how we view ourselves, how we view the world. It's really getting a lot bigger in our view, in our understanding. Being able to open in loving kindness or friendship to many more different aspects of ourselves. Being able to open to others with that sense of We might like somebody or not. We might choose to be with them or not. We might feel appropriately we need to protect ourselves from them. But nonetheless, on the level of intention, there really is no such thing as a stranger. The great um, Hindu saint named Kurali Baba Maharaji had this wonderful saying where he said, never put anyone out of your heart Never throw anyone out of your heart. And once I was teaching here with a colleague of mine, Sylvia Borstein, who, in response to a question she was asked, quoted that. She said, never throw anyone out of your heart. She said, you might throw them out of your life, <laughs> but never throw them out of your heart. Which is a good point. The intention doesn't dictate the action. We may perform many different kinds of action based on an intention of loving-kindness or compassion or whatever. It doesn't mean that if we are filled with love, we will necessarily say, okay, you know, do it again. We might take any kind of action, but we need to know where is it coming from? because that's where our freedom is, is in being able to expand that, that sense of 
of connection beyond our normal limited boundaries. One of my favorite stories about Sylvia has to do with this time when she was leaving here. She just taught here. And uh, she got on an airplane, which on her way back to San Francisco, the plane stopped in Chicago and then took off again. And in that second leg of the journey from Chicago to San Francisco, she said about 45 minutes into the flight, the pilot got on the PA system and he said, now there's really nothing to worry about, but we've developed a little problem in the hydraulic system of the plane, and rather than fly over the Rockies without a fully functioning hydraulic system, we're just going to turn back to Chicago, and there's really nothing to worry about, and the flight attendants will now instruct you in the proper position to take in the event of an emergency landing. <laughs> and they're going to go around and collect all of your shoes, all of your eyeglasses, and all of the pens out of your pockets, which was a little confusing, but I later learned had something to do with what might happen if you're going down an emergency chute. Um, so Sylvia was sitting there with no shoes, no glasses, um, and she decided that she was going to do meta practice. And she did it in just the way um, we began. She began sending meta, using the phrases, to those people in her life that she was closest to, her husband, children, their partners, her grandchildren. She would just keep repeating the phrases, going through that list, until she'd get to her youngest grandchild. And when she got there, she'd go back and begin again with her husband and just keep going through that rotation. She also said that, for some reason, the pilot kept getting back on the PA system every five minutes, and he would say, we're going to be landing in 35 minutes, we're going to be landing in 30 minutes, we're going to be landing in 25 minutes. And each time he would do that, she would just go back to doing the metta in exactly that way, toward these, these people she was so close to that she loved so much in the conventional sense. And then finally the pilot got on the PA system and he said, we're going to be landing in five minutes. So Sylvia thought, well, in five minutes, either I'll be dead or I'll still be alive. So she went back to doing the metta, and what she discovered in that moment with that thought, well, you know, in five minutes I might die, was that she actually couldn't confine herself or limit herself to those precious few beings in her life, that in fact the only way she could do the metta was for all beings everywhere. And so that's what she did for the last five minutes. She said the plane landed, it was a landing just like any other landing, and they fixed whatever, uh, and then they took off again. But I really love that story because I love the sense I get of the, the naturalness of that moment when she just couldn't. It wasn't like she had to strain or force. It was really like the Buddha saying, and let it. Let it happen based on wisdom, based on clear seeing. Thinking that she might only have five minutes left to live. She just couldn't actually create the kind of, of differences that had governed the metta in the first 35 minutes. It's not that she doesn't have, and even now, of course, 
unique and special relationships that are, are extraordinary with these beings. But in terms of inclusion in her heart, in well-wishing, in care, she actually just couldn't. And it's such an interesting moment because it's so unpretentious. There's nothing phony about it. There's nothing facile about it. And there's nothing forced about it. You know, it's not like she was sitting there and saying, well, you know, I am a Buddhist meditation teacher and it's not that seemly to end my life, you know, on this note where I'm just limiting my loving kindness to these few beings. You know, what if anyone ever found out, you know, that I was, you know, I was doing this really limited kind of metta in the last 35 minutes of my life, you know, it would be really poor showing. So I don't really want to, but I better, you know, kind of try to somehow send metta to all beings everywhere. You know, it's just not like that. It was so pure in that naturalness. It's like she just couldn't. And so that's what we come to as we do this kind of practice over and over again. Not every moment and not in every instance. But we see, as you know, our hesitations and our fears and our distrust. and our, We see all of that. And if we can see it and hold all of that in the light of some gentleness and compassion for ourselves, then it actually does begin to to erode. And what happens is that we just can't maintain a sort of separation in the level of, of intention of our heart, of aiming our heart. We just can't anymore. And so our world gets bigger. Reminds me of a story a friend of mine told me who is a very... Um, apparently a very good therapist. She was um, in a lot of demand. And she told me the story once about this time this man came to see her and said he wanted to be her client. And she really didn't like him much. She didn't approve of a lot of his behavior and his political views and all kinds of things. And so she tried to send him away, but he really wanted to see her. And was very persuasive, so she said she took him on as her client. And she said it was interesting because once he became her client, then it was like they were on the same team, and she was necessarily his ally. And so what happened was that she looked at his behavior and a lot of his difficulties and still didn't like them, but she also saw them as elements in his life that were creating great suffering for him. And so her efforts to help him see things another way were based on a much greater sense of compassion because they were, after all, on the same team. So she said that she never grew so much to like him, but she grew very deeply to love him. And the way she expressed it was, he was mine. When she told me that story, I thought about the Buddhist term um, the bodhisattva, which means, has many different meanings, but one meaning is a person, a being who aspires to enlightenment, to freedom of mind, with the knowledge that their own liberation from suffering is inextricably woven with the liberation from suffering of all beings everywhere. So from the point of view of 
and bodhisattva, everybody's ours. No matter what the particular relationship and no matter what action we need to take, the, the knowledge is that we are all connected, that we're not separate and we're not apart, and that we can, we can live our lives with that very, from that very basic and, and predominant understanding. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.